And we're talking about the Reformation, family, church, the world. If we want to see revival, we want to see change, we want to see transformation, if you're concerned about what's going on in the world around you, uh, the best way for us to do something about it is to, the church really needs not just revival, but a reformation of coming back to some things that God uh, would have us to be about. And discipleship is one of those. Family is another one that's important. Now, if you could travel back with me to earlier in the Bible to the nation of Israel, the tabernacle and or the temple, both of them, inside, it was the place where God set up his presence. And he set up his presence and he manifests his presence in this little room called the Holy of Holies. So in that room, there was an ark, the Ark of the Covenant, which was a big box, kind of like this trunk here, but had two angels on it. And inside it was the Ten Commandments and several different things. And, and this is the place where God set up his presence and they would sprinkle blood on the Ark of the Covenant once a year on the Day of Atonement. And, and the priest could only go into the room with, with the Holy of Holies once a year. Outside of that room was another room called the Holy Place. And in the holy place, there was a series of different things that were there for the nation of Israel. One of them was was an altar of incense. There was one little altar that had some incense in it that burned. And as the smoke would rise from that into the temple and fill the temple, it it was symbolic of the prayers of the saints, the people of God praying before the throne of God. In fact, uh, we know based on the book of Isaiah and other places in Scripture that the earthly temple was a replica of something that's in heaven right now. There is a temple Okay, and it still stands. And so though it got knocked down in Israel and all that's left is the Western Wall, and that's part of all the conflict going over there in the Middle East, uh, there is an eternal temple and it's still, a sta- it's still standing and God is still on his throne. But nonetheless, in the earthly one, the, the replica, where God manifests his presence on earth, in the holy place, you have the altar of incense. You also have a, a table stand, a lamp stand, I'm sorry. There was, there was a lamp there, a lamp stand and it illuminated that space, but most importantly, it was set up next to the table of showbread, shewbread, S-H-E-W, shewbread, and that bread represent, later it would picture the bread of life, that Jesus is the bread of life. What does our nation need? What does our neighbors need? What do we need? Most importantly, we need Jesus, the bread of life. How is the bread of life, Jesus, going to be visible to the world around us if there's not a light that is illuminating him to the people around us. And so that lampstand represents God's spirit inside the church and his people. So it's really critical that we think through how we do church and how we do family and how we live our lives because whether the world is going to see Jesus in our lives is, is directly connected with how well Uh, we are uh, allowing him to be illuminated in and through us. Does that make sense? You see how important these things are. There's two primary places where God has chosen to display his wisdom and his glory in the world, the church and the family. Ephesians chapter 3 says that the manifold wisdom of God is being displayed through the church. And then you go to Ephesians chapter 5, and he begins to talk about uh, don't be drunk with wine for his dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit And then he talks about how the Spirit brings about worship in the church and then how there's order in the home and how the home ultimately leads to a second and critical picture of Jesus and the church, and that is marriage. So marriage is is the second most important place in the family where Jesus is seen, not just in the church, but in our marriages. In in Ephesians chapter 5, you read it, some of the most clear instruction on how the family is to be ordered and how it functions And at the very end of it, he says, this mystery I'm talking about is really great. 
And you would assume he means marriage, but he doesn't. He says, and I'm talking about Christ and the church. The whole point of that passage isn't directly marriage. It's secondarily marriage. It's directly pointing to Jesus. That's the point of that passage. So that is critical. Why would the world want or need Jesus if we do not want or need Jesus? Why would the world want or need Jesus that we say they need if if we don't really need him? We're doing fine without him. How can our children see their need for Jesus if when we uh, when we alone or pa- their parents have no practical need for Jesus outside of Sunday morning worship services. When we isolate Jesus to just a slice of our lives and kids see that, doesn't matter how important you say and how vital Jesus is to us, if the only time your kids see you excited or even interested in Jesus is Sunday mornings or the couple times you're at church, th- there's going to be a problem. There's going to be a disconnect, and that's what I want to focus on. This is a really critical thing in verse uh, verses chapter... One verses five and on. Let me read them for you. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remains in order, that you would appoint elders in every town as I corrected, as I have um, directed you. And if anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers, not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he might be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So in the qualifications for leadership in the church, this is what is laid out. And, and here's simply an outline of this next little section of Scripture. Um, jump to this next slide there. This is the outline. We're going we're gonna to focus in on the family part of this, but I just want you to see the flow of thought here. The first thing he's saying is, are, are there accusations about this leader? We're going to put a leader in charge of the church. And let me pause for a second and say, this is not a, this is not a passage of Scripture that says, this is what the church leadership is supposed to be like. The rest of you guys, it really doesn't matter. This is not the point of the passage. What he's saying is this is what the body of Christ is supposed to look like if it will correctly and accurately and vividly illuminate Jesus to the world around him. And to the degree that the body of Christ doesn't look like this, you will hinder the influence of Christ, the display of his glory and his wisdom and his saving power to the world around you. You will hinder that if the body of Christ doesn't look like this. And if the body of Christ is supposed to look like this, how much more critical is it that you put leadership in charge that is emulating and and exemplifying what the body of Christ is supposed to look like? Here's the qualifications. That's the logic and the the flow of thought. So the first thing, are there accusations? Is he above reproach? Is he blameless? That's the first thing. Is there stuff going around about this guy and questions about his character and his integrity? And, and, um, you know, are there any flags about his life? That's, that's the first thing. And then second, it says uh, you examine not just is he above approach, but examine his home. Look at his family. Examine his home. Look at his family. The next issue, jumping down to verse 7, examine his heart. Are there signs of the flesh, his flesh 
being dominant in his life? Is it obvious that he is yielding to the flesh or is he yielding to the spirit? For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach, not be arrogant, quick-tempered, drunkard, violent, greedy for gain. Those are negative things. He shouldn't be about these things. These are negatives. Look at his heart. What do you see? Jesus said, out of the wellspring, out of the, from the heart, the mouth speaks. You want to know what's really going on in somebody? Hear what they say, and that will reveal what's going on in their heart. So what, what's, what's going on in the heart? And then the second thing is his health. The third thing, actually, his health. Goes for some signs of fruit in this person's life. Are they hospitable, lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, disciplined? And the last thing, examine his faithfulness to the word of God. Is he faithful to the word of God? Is he not just about his family? Is, there not, is he dealt with, is, is the flesh not obvious and it's been dealt with in his life? Is there spiritual fruit? And then is there faithfulness in his handling of the word of God? Is he able to teach it? And is he able to, to rebuke those who are, are wrong in their understanding and their application of, of the word of God and are contradicting um, the word of God by their lives or their beliefs? Is he able to do those things? That's, that's the passage. Now, let's go back and let's focus on the family. And this is a really critical. And we're actually, this is so important. We're not going to finish talking about this today. We really are going to camp out on the family. And this is a critical thing for us as a church. Now, you say, well, I don't really have kids or my kids are grown up or I don't have kids yet or I got rid of them a long time ago or whatever your circumstances are. Um, you might have grandkids. You know people that have kids. You can partner with people. I can assure you, you, all of us in this room have been a kid at one point in our lives, right? And so um, it's, it's important that we think about, and to the degree that you have the opportunity to influence, pray for, serve families, you can be a part of this. You can be a part of this. So this might not necessarily directly be issues in your life. You don't have kids or whatever, but you're part of the body of Christ. And so together, we pray for, we serve, we help. You know, a lot of the folks that are serving in our kids' areas, even this morning, don't even have children back there. We have people serving our children that don't have children. And so it's important for us to understand the heartbeat of what the Word of God teaches and that we're all on the same page as a church with what we are needing to be about and that we are consistent with the Word of God. So examine his home. First issue on that. Is he a one-woman man? Now, I don't have time to get into this in depth. If you go on our website under media, there is a message on divorce uh, we're through the Gospel of Matthew that deals with that a little more in detail, um, which is back, um, I want to say it's in June. It was June this past year, so June uh, 2014. You can go back there, I'm almost 95% sure it's posted on there. Feel free to listen to that if you want to explore this. Um, simply put, the mar- marriage is a really vital, important place to, um, to have a good standard. Does it, can God use you if you're divorced? Absolutely. Absolutely. But you need to be in leadership Probably not. Now, a lot of people say there's circumstances where the, the challenge there is getting into the circumstances. Who's right? Who's wrong? What happened? What this? What that? It's, it's best to avoid that. There's circumstances where churches and their leadership have looked at the circumstances in a, in a pastor's life and family, and they felt like that uh, he still meets the qualifications. I, I think that's where churches are autonomous. They can pray through, work through that. But the best policy ultimately is we want to exemplify what we are holding the body of Christ for. And it does not limit us from being able to serve in faithfulness to the Lord Jesus. There's thousands of things that we can do and pour into people's lives and serve. So if, if that's your background or your family members, that don't, don't feel like, you know, man, there's, wow, wow, there's nothing left for me. There's plenty of stuff left for all of us. It's just in leadership, you want a person that's not, uh, that, that is exemplifying in their marriage a standard that other people can follow. Does that make sense? That's ultimately what we're saying. 
And so without getting into circumstances of this situation, that situation, that's the point. The husband of one wife. Clearly, uh, he's not a polygamist. Uh, but another interesting thing is uh, this is not teaching that clergy are supposed to be single and celibate, okay? That's not teaching that. I'm not sure where um, certain divisions of Christianity got that, but um, I remember driving the shuttle for Holiday Inn just around the corner um, when I was in college, and I, I was um, I would have a business guy would be in and pick him up at the airport and driving him to the um, hotel, and they're asking questions about, well, you're a student, yeah, what are you studying, speech communications, ETSU, okay, what are you going to do with that? Well, actually, I'm going to go on theological education, be a pastor, Oh, man, so you're not going to be able to get married? I'll be able to get married and have kids, have a wife and all that. And I was like, no, that's not my tribe. That's not my tribe. No, we can get married in my tribe. That's not a problem. But uh, anyways, but there's confusion on that. But clearly, uh, that's not a problem here in this passage. Um, It is important. It's ideal that they are so that you have another place to examine their life and integrity. The husband of one wife. Secondly, this is the more important passage part we want to camp out on. His children are believers. Children are believers. Now, some translate this word. Clearly, it means faithful. Some say, well, they have to be believers. Some say, well, they just need to be faithful and productive and not, you know, unfaithful, ungodly. Uh, Are they responsible? At the least, that's what it's saying. But more ideally, how can we, how could somebody lead a church if he has not been able to lead his home? And if he cannot serve and teach and instruct and nurture his children to give them the best environment that they would believe in Jesus and put their salvation in Jesus, how can he lead the church if he can't lead his own family? And so ideally, it would be that this person... Now, that being said, what do you do with a guy who doesn't have... He's married, but he doesn't have kids, or his kids aren't old enough to believe yet. Does that mean he's disqualified from being a pastor? Not necessarily. Uh, we, Paul didn't... He, he was not... Uh, we don't have an example of Paul being married... Um, he didn't have kids. Jesus didn't have, uh, he wasn't married. He didn't have kids. He was certainly qualified. He's the head of the church. There's examples of, of Paul and Timothy and others who we don't have any evidence of them having family. Peter did have family, interestingly enough, and uh, he had a mother-in-law, so we assume he had a, a wife. We don't know about his kids, um, but uh, they're looking at the family. Are his kids believing? That's a question to, to look at. A, a second place to look is are his kids reckless and wasteful? Children are believing and faithful. His children are not living recklessly. This is the phrase that says, not open to the charge of debauchery. That's a word we use often, isn't it? Debauchery. Uh, that's the same word that's translated in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18 as dissipation, which is another word we don't use often. If you take some alcohol, you're about to get a shot for the flu or whatever, and they take a little alcohol swab and they put it on, the, and the alcohol dissipates, it kind of disappears. That's the picture of what he's saying. That they live their life in such a way that it's just wasted. It's reckless. It is useless. In fact, to, to, to look at that word used in other places, it's picturing um, a life uh, wasteful, reckless. In, the, in one writing, it's used of a person described as eating gluttonously. Somebody's just over-consuming, an, an over-consumer, uh, out-of-control consumption, Partiers, wild, crazy, living for the moment. In other words, is this person's kids, are they consumers of worldliness and ungodliness? Quite frankly, when, when I look at the world and I look at kids, that, that is what the world is spectacular at producing. It's all about consumption. 
It's all about the latest this, the latest that. We, we you know, I, I remember uh, Janet and I, when we were, uh, before we had kids, we were experts on parenting. Um, let that sink in for a second. We would drive down the road and, you know, you'd see cars with these little TVs. Back then, it was, uh, I don't know if there's flat screens. Most of the time, it was the big chunky ones. And uh, you'd see, and we, we think, how ridiculous those parents, that they would have their kids, they'd have a television. I mean, this is an incredible opportunity for family time, for them to interact and talk while they're on a trip, while they're driving. And then once we had a couple kids, we we're like, you know, we need a television. We need a television. <laughs> Everybody's got a television, everybody's got something, everybody's got some way of being plugged in so that we can have just a moment of peace and quiet and not be, you know, and, and the main thing is that they're not saying, how much longer, how much longer, we're just like, here's another movie, okay, here's another one, play this game, Do it, you know, whatever. Uh, I don't want to go too far on this, but, but I want you to understand that there's, it's not all bad, okay, media's not all bad, but there's a point where if uh, it's like, you know, dessert. I mean, you know, cake's not all bad either, but if it's your main diet all the time, if the only thing you ever feed your children is are Twinkies, there's going to be a problem, right? If the only thing they eat is Twinkies and ice cream and, and birthday cake, there's going to be a problem with your children. You have to give them something a little healthier, right? And so when we, uh, when we, our parenting style is that our kids are plugged in so we don't have to deal with them, that is not a healthy thing. You are creating children who are consumers who are disconnected who who eventually are just going to waste their life their life will be wasted blown away it'll dissipate you with me this is what we create believing children not living recklessly wastefully not just consumers of worldliness think about the diet of what your children get while they are plugged into whatever they're plugged into Think about the worldviews and the information and the, the false truths that they're constantly consuming. I mean, even I, my kids uh, love Star Wars. We're all into Lord of the Rings and Chronicles of Narnia and all those different things. There's certain things your kids might watch, my kids won't watch. There's certain things my kids might watch that your kids wouldn't watch. But regardless, uh, you know, even in Star Wars, I don't let my kids just consume Star Wars without working through the worldviews. We talk about what's being taught in there. We talk about the Buddhism and the New Age philosophy that is woven into that. As they're old, getting older, we work through those things. I don't just say, when it, it's not a good movie. It was a movie when I was a kid. We watched that. that. There is no media out there that does not have an agenda and doesn't have a narrative that they're trying to push. There is, there is a purpose behind every single thing that you consume. Every news article, every commercial, every TV show, every song that you watch, every advertisement and picture and clip and video and whatever, there is a purpose and an agenda behind it. And we have got to wake up to understand what those agendas are and help our children to navigate those things or you're going to end up with kids who will dissipate their life away. They will waste it. They will blow it. It will be reckless. It'll be wasted. Are kids believing? Are kids living recklessly, wastefully? And then the last example there, he says, they're, they're not rebellious. They're not insubordinate. They're not independent, rebellious, undisciplined, disobedient. They're made subject. They respect their parents and their parents' authority and the authority of others. How will they ever yield to the authority of God, their heavenly father, if they don't, uh, they don't yield to the authority of their earthly father? Listen, there, there is, uh, we'll get into this more as we move along in the next couple weeks. But the philosophies for parenting, I want to tell you, they're ungodly, worldly, humanistic, uh, evolutionary 
atheistic philosophies that we have digested as Christians and assumed to be right that are unhealthy and dangerous for our children. When you raise your children as if they're the center of the universe, okay, and and whatever makes them happy is what they need, again, you're back to the the parent that just stuffs Twinkies in their kid's mouth all the time. It's not just about their diet, but they have to learn discipline. And they have to learn how to obey and submit to authority and to live under authority. We all have to do that on a regular basis. How will they ever function in society, much less how will they ever uh, yield to Christ and live for His glory if they don't understand how to submit themselves to authorities that God has placed in their life? These questions and these qualifications bring a question to us. Simple questions for us. Let's apply it to us. How's your marriage? How's your marriage doing? Is it healthy? Is your marriage healthy? Are you investing in your marriage? Those are your marriage. Are you, are, what are you doing to have a healthier marriage? How are you growing in your communication, in your love for one another, in your um, desire, in your ability to, uh, to pursue one another and submit yourself to Christ and to one another? Husbands, are you loving your wives like wife, like Christ loves the church? Wives, are you yielding yourselves to your husbands, knowing that he's going to be held accountable for the way he leads your family? Are you allowing him to lead? Are you supporting him and encouraging him? Are you respecting, showing respect and, um, and, and care for your husband? I mean, how are we doing? For, for those of you that are single, how are you doing laying a foundation for your future marriage? You're not married yet. You say, well, I'm, I'm dating. Well, that's not your spouse. That could be somebody else's spouse. We we don't know yet. You're not married yet. So be considerate the way you're interacting, the way you're handling yourself with the the other people that are friends and brothers and sisters in Christ. Are you laying down a good foundation, a track record for your future marriage? How are our marriages? The second thing is, um, are your children believing? Are they faithful? What are you doing to be able to point your kids to Jesus? Are you just hoping that someday, you may be vacation Bible school this year, they'll hear, hear the gospel and follow Christ? I mean, I, anytime my kids want to trust in Jesus is a spectacular thing. I'm excited about that. But I sure hope I get to be a part of that conversation. I will be a part of that conversation one way or another, right? How are you doing on that? Are you talking about Jesus? Are you talking about the Lord with your kids? Are your kids believers? Are you fostering them, helping them understand what it means to follow Jesus? Are your kids uh, living recklessly and wastefully? Are they living lives of dissipation, debauchery, or are you helping them understand that, that all consumption is not healthy, that you're, you're helping them understand and grow to be discerning of what is evil and what is true and what is right and what is uh, wrong? Are, they, are you helping them grow in being um, subordinate? How are you doing in those areas? Let me give you some statistics and some thoughts here about these. 60% of parents look to their own experiences growing up as their primary source of guidance in how they parent. The vast majority of parents, when you tell them, you know, what's your plan for parenting? You know what they did? Well, the way I was raised is, which is probably not the best way to parent your kids because I've got one big giant reason why that's not healthy. The world has changed. And if you're using the same strategy that your parents use with you, it isn't going to work, okay? The options and the ways to to digest lies and false truth is far more um, intense today than they were 20, 30 years ago. And so you, you better be thinking about that one. 21% indicate they receive a lot of guidance from sacred texts like the Bible, other um, 
books. This wasn't specific Christian specific uh, survey. 50% depend a lot on the church. As for the church, 39% of Protestant parents and 71% of Catholic parents say it is not a source of encouragement as a parent. Church doesn't really help me as a parent. We're going to change that here at Cross Life. We're, going to, we're not going to be guilty on that one. If, if, if the win for us is making disciples, and we, if we can't fail at that, we can't fail at equipping parents to do that with their kids. We can't do that. Let me give you some more extensive study of 272,000 teenagers conducted by USA Today Weekly Magazine found that 70% of teens identified their parents, get this parents, as the most influential uh, people in their lives. 70% of, of kids said it's their parents are the most influential. You'd say, well, no, it's their friends. 21% said that about their friends and peers, and only 8% said that about the media. They'd say their primary influencers are their parents. So parents, why are we punting on that responsibility and letting other people raise our children? Parents may be undervaluing themselves when they conclude that sending their kids off to every conceivable extracurricular activity is better use of time than an hour spent around a table talking to mom and dad. It is, in fact, that uh, it is a fact that when families eat dinner together, if you will just change that one thing in your family, kids are less likely to drink, smoke, use drugs, have an eating disorder, get depressed, consider suicide, fail, fail out of school, or uh, be involved in immorality, according to Time Magazine, June fourth, two thousand six. Uh, Anheuser-Busch Beer says, Studies have shown that parents are the primary influence on their children's choices and decisions, and that is why we're proud to help offer help to parents. And then um, Coors Beer Brewing Company, they, they wanted to get on this too. They said um, they have a website called MVP, MV Parents States. Nearly three out of four parents believe their children's friends and classmates have the most influence, yet contrary to what parents think, kids say mom and dad have the biggest impact on the choices that they make. Uh, some prominent researchers, and by the way, this is all secular research. This isn't like Christian you know, bubble stuff here. This is, this is worldly research, but, but discerning. Bob Altemeyer and uh, Bruce Hunsberger state in their book, Amazing Conversions, we acquire our religion from our parents almost as certainly as we inherit the color of our eyes. They go on to say, all the different approaches to studying parental influences in the religious socialization process converge on one single conclusion. Parents play an extremely important role in the development, developing religious attitudes and practices of their offspring. In fact, few researchers who quarrel with the conclusion that parents will quarrel with the conclusion that parents are the most important influencers in this regard. So think about it this way. Your kids, we talked about this several weeks ago, but let me bring you back to this point. When they're born, the most important thing you could probably do is take a suitcase and put it in their room and sit it there as a daily reminder that they're yours only for a limited amount of time. You've got approximately 18 years to pack into their lives the most critical things they're going to need to be able to navigate this evil, deceiving, confusing world full of false beliefs and lies about God and about what really life is really about. Let me, let me get even more clear to that. Not only do you have a limited amount of time, let's get even more specific. You have exactly 936 weeks. There's 936 marbles in this jar right here. That's how much time you have. 936 weeks. 
to pour into their lives. That's all you have. That might seem like a lot, but that's, that's really not a lot. In fact, uh, my kids, my oldest is paid. He's 12 and a half years old. We only have 286 weeks left before he hits 18. 286 weeks. That's 936. We can just dump off two-thirds of this right now because they're gone. Those marbles, are they, we can't get them back. They're gone. For Caroline, she's the littlest one, um, she's two. We have 824 weeks. Seems like a long time there when you compare the two. I don't know if we'll make it for all of them, but we have a limited amount of time. You understand that? Feel that weight. Think about that. You have very limited time to pack into their lives the things that they're going to need to walk with Jesus for a lifetime. Think about what sacrifices do you need to make? What is the win for you? This, this is the critical thing. When we think about this, at the age of 18, what do I want my kids to know, to believe, to have imparted into their life by that age. And if you ask, if we were to do a survey and we were to have everybody, we should have done that, write down, in fact, I would challenge you to go home and think about this and just take a second right now even. What is the goal? What is the win for you in parenting? What do you want for your kids when they graduate? If you're to think about that, make a mental note. The majority of us would probably say, I want my kids to have a good life. I want them to have some basic affluence um, you know, I want them to be able to provide for themselves well and be able to enjoy the things that they need to enjoy, and I want them to be happy. I want my kids to be happy, and I want them... But, but should we not want, first and foremost, our kids to know Jesus and to live for His glory? I, it, it, think about this. I, I want my kids to have a good education so that they can get a, in the college and get a good job later and they can provide for themselves what would it be better for them to have an awesome job and make tons of money and be ungodly and far from god or to you know be shaking hands as people walk into walmart um helping people get baskets but love jesus i'm not saying education isn't important but i'm just saying you better think about the win because you have limited time you need to think about the win what is the goal those things aren't mutually exclusive but you don't have a lot of time, you better be really strategic about what you're doing with it. Knowing we have limited time with the immortal souls that God, that's our children, that God has entrusted into our care, it is vital and critical that we come up with a goal, to find win as to what we're seeking and trying to accomplish for our kids and in their lives. So what are the things that we need to pack into their lives in the journey so that one day they could be launched out to make an impact for His glory in the world around us. We have bought into the lie that the win for our kids is that we, they would have personal peace and affluence. That they would be happy and well off. That's, that's the win for most parents. I just want my kids to be happy. I just want to be happy. I want them to be well off. We live and teach our children that this is the chief end of man, the goal of life, is personal happiness and financial success. And yet Jesus says, what will it cost a man if he gains the world and yet loses his soul? Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, verse 30, but if a man, if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive, tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, don't be anxious, saying, what shall we eat? And what shall we drink? And what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things. They seek after 
personal happiness and affluence. They, they seek after financial success. That's what they live for. But do you not know that my Father knows that you need these things? Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. Therefore, don't be anxious about tomorrow. Tomorrow has enough um, anxiety for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own troubles. World Magazine, there's an article that was out just this last week uh, that was published. Very interesting. It says, young adults who said their fathers explained biblical principles to them on a daily or weekly basis growing up were significantly likely to say they lived uh, to say they live by typical Christian behavior as adults by praying, volunteering, reading their Bible, attending church frequently, and avoiding pornography, man- marijuana use, abortion, cohabitation. If you had to ask for a mixture of things that overall are correlated with strong Christian beliefs and strong Christian uh, practice, you'd be looking at making sure mom and dad developed a relationship with their teens that they that they're regular participants in local church, and that they practice home-based, parent-led discipleship, says Brian Ray. The researcher, the, the researcher behind um, the survey, the president of the National Home Education Research Institute of Salem, Oregon, I don't want to pretend it's a formula. I'm just saying, statistically, there's a pattern. Is that the only way to do it? Not necessarily, but you drastically increase the likelihood that your kids are going to live for the glory of God. You know that... Uh, there was a statistic done in Europe that 100% of kids that were in the, um, in the schools in Europe that, that their parents were atheist or agnostic or irreligious, 100% of those children carried on their parents' same religious beliefs. And of the Christian families that sent their kids to the European, their school system, whatever, that 50% of the Christian kids carried on their parents' belief. I'm not telling you what to do with education. I'm just saying the more times that you can talk to your kids and you can pour into them, if you take a passive approach, hello, dads. If you take the easiest way, if you take the easiest route, I provide and I take care of my family, that's great. Do you care if your kids walk with Jesus? Are you even concerned about the fact that you have a limited time with them? Or is your goal reduced to just, just, as long as they can provide for themselves, be happy? Is their happiness going to be found apart from Christ, is that not the goal of life, to know God, to love God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, your spirit? I, I don't want to just throw this out there. and I mean, You just need to love, you raise your kids to love. We want to give you some practical tools and steps on how to do this. But this morning, I just want to lay out for you the, the, the critical reality of the limited time that we have with our kids. How can we raise kids that can one day be launched out into the world who have innocence but not naivety. They're not naive. They know the way the world is, but they have an innocence and a godliness and a holiness about them. That would be the win for me. The Bible gives us a clear-cut pattern. We find that in Deuteronomy chapter 6. We find that in Psalms chapter 78. You might want to read those this week. Joshua said, for my family, it's for my family, you know, we're going to serve the Lord. Basically means you have three options. As parents, you can do nothing and you can change nothing and you can hope it works out. That's fine. But I don't think that's probably wise. Second thing you could do is you could be idealistic, legalistic, unrealistic, 
And you can set unattainable goals that are just ridiculous. You could build a right, you could construct for your kids some kind of righteousness based upon your home options. That's not healthy. That's not the gospel. Making little Pharisees isn't going to make them any closer to Jesus, okay? That doesn't help anything. Or number three, you can choose to grow, to learn, and to begin to make small changes that result in a legacy shift for your family. See, it's not just about you, and it's just not, not just about your kids. It's about your kids' kids and your kids' 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 kids. We're not just about a generation here. We're about the generations. That's what we want to be about, equipping the generations to come at Cross Life Church. And so my prayer, my encouragement for you this morning is that you would choose to grow, choose to learn, especially dads, that you guys would step up to the plate and you would do whatever you need to do to learn how to be men of God who lead your families well. Understanding the gospel, applying it to your families, pointing them to Jesus, knowing that you have a very limited time to do that. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for showing us, for pointing out to us, for, for illuminating to us the need for your grace, God, to, that you have entrusted us with our children, and they are immortal. They have little souls that will live forever. And they will be eternally glorious as they illuminate Jesus and, and find their greatest fulfillment and satisfaction in life in you. Or Lord, I don't even want to think about the other option. It's too serious. God, that we would be passive. Lord, we repent of our passivity. And we repent of false advertising from churches saying, you know, drop, dump your kids off two hours a week and we will give them what they need. Lord, how, how ridiculous is that? God, I pray that you would help us as a church to learn how to to love children, youth, and invest in them and equip parents, moms and dads to love their kids, to invest in their kids. Lord, equip us as a church. God, in the weeks to come, give us the tools we need to be able to do this and do this well. And Father, I pray for repentance. I pray for, um, God, the greatest thing our kids need and the world needs is not for a bunch of perfect parents and professing Christians. But God, they need us to recognize our need for you, that none of us have arrived. None of us are doing what we need to do. None of us are perfect in any of these areas. All of us need Jesus more. And I pray that because of that need for Christ, that the lamp would more brightly shine on our need for Jesus, that we could point others to their need for Jesus. As we pray, as we respond by giving, by reflection, by Surrender our lives to you, God. I pray that you would just work in our hearts and our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. We worship.